Well, we're going to look at all ten chapters of Esther this morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're going to look at a few things, and I'm going to do something different than I normally would do. I've, uh, I have a lot of traveling sometimes in my job, and I travel to Fayette County and Perry County, and, and I travel to Clark County and, and uh, Fairfield and so forth. And so as I'm in the car by myself, I am preaching this sermon. I wonder what people think when they see me. My mouth is going and my hand is going. I do have one hand in the wheel. And every time that I've thought that I've had the sermon down, it comes out different. So today's probably another way. It will come out differently today. And those times that I was preaching the sermon myself over these past few weeks, it was for me because you didn't hear me. But I hope that you anticipate this morning what God will teach you something. And if I say anything that's good and, and theological and wonderful and academic, I don't take the credit because I've studied, I looked at the different people, what they said, John Parsons from Hebrew for Christians and, and uh, the, the Chabad and, and Ray Steadman, if you ever know who he is, he goes way back a long time ago. And I uh, looked at the different commentaries and I kind of put some stuff together. And, uh, and, and if it's going to help you this morning, I hope it helps you. I hope that you will be, be blessed because this is a time that we remember. Marcy's correct. We need to remember that God is behind the scenes, that God is a sovereign God, even though the things that are happening in the Middle East right now are terrible, horrific, cutting off of heads and so forth. I mean, I just can't imagine that. I, I just can't believe it's happening, but it is. There is a battle for the soul, and that's what I've entitled the message this morning. There's a battle for the soul. We have an enemy who hates you and me if we love Yeshua. We have him in our hearts. He hates us with a hatred, with a hatred that can't be matched by anything or anyone. Why? Because he does not want us to bring glory to God. You see, if Haman had his way, he would have gotten rid of the Jews, the Jewish people. Therefore, the Gentiles of today would not have Messiah Yeshua, because the Messiah Yeshua came through the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. So here we are, again, this year, ready to celebrate Purim. I hope that you've read the book of Esther in preparation for the celebration. And if you haven't read it this past week, read it today. Read it tomorrow. I know that next Wednesday, I believe, if you are here, we will at least hear it read amidst the booing of Haman and the cheers of Mordechai and Esther. However, I would, like, I would exhort you to read it before that time. It's only 10 chapters, and you can sit down and read it probably within 20 minutes to a half hour, maybe. It's very short. In preparation for today, I have read it many times. I can't tell you how many times, but I've read it many times. Different translations to see what the idea behind what was being translated. Uh, I'm not that good in Hebrew, although I can read Hebrew, I can understand some of it. But I wanted to get some good translations, and I did. I read that. Why is this book here? I mean... What's its purpose? Sure, we celebrate Purim. We have a holiday. Surely as we read this book, we find that there are no, there's no mention of God. We know that, right? There's no mention of heaven. There's no mention of hell. There's no mention of redemption. There's no mention of worship or faith. And you could probably name some others. There's nothing very spiritual about this book at first glance as you look at it, just reading it. Matter of fact, I was reading some... Jewish commentaries, and there was one particular person who thought that this was a book about women's lib because of Esther and the queen not showing up and Vashti and all that. And I'm thinking, okay, that's an interesting idea, but I don't think that's what it's there for. 
Indeed, it's a fascinating book to be sure. By the way, this is one of three books that are about women in the Bible. Do you know the other two off the top of your head? Ruth, you got it, I hear it. Song of Solomon's the other. It's a delightful story about a young Jewish girl who becomes queen of a foreign nation and her part in saving her people from the destruction of the enemy that Saul did not take care of back in the day. The book has intrigue wherein we find an enemy totally focused on getting rid of all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia at that time because of one pious man, Mordechai, who does not bow down to him. It's about a king who loves his queen, yet has to banish his first queen and then have another queen and love her as well. It's about a Jewish man, Mordechai, who becomes great, second only to the king at the end of the story of this foreign kingdom and ultimately the victory and rejoicing of the Jewish remnant who stayed in Persia. And we have a perpetual holiday started, which is celebrated even up to this day. As I've been reflecting on this portion of Scripture, I've come to the conclusion that we see the following, and you've heard me say this before. We see the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He is ruler. He does what He wants to do. We see the power of God and His presence and his provision, and behind the scenes he is working out his will, and we see the victory of God. In essence, we see the providence of God working in those who are obedient to him in his ways. It's interesting, it's not a miraculous thing that happens. He doesn't part the Red Sea. You know, he doesn't come down and, and slay the, the, uh, the, the enemies, right? No, he uses human beings like you and like me. However, we analyze this wonderful book, this story is about God and what he will do in his will, and that his will is not going to be thwarted by anyone, anything, any way. He is God. He is sovereign, period. As we read this scripture, this portion of scripture, we see God is working through natural means, through human, the human agency, through this remnant of Jews who did not go back to the land because they were going back. They could go back, and they didn't go back. They stayed. It is how he brings his will through the free will choices of men who are perhaps unaware of, to his workings, they couldn't see it necessarily, and that it is he who is giving the ultimate victory. We need to read, he, what we read here is filled with God's fingerprints, his characters, his characteristics of sovereignty, power, victory. He is working behind the scenes in the king, in Esther, in Mordechai, and in the Jewish community at large as well. Think about it for a moment. A queen is disobedient to the king, and you know, she should have died because she didn't go before the presence of the king, but she didn't. He ended up banishing her, divorcing her. Because of this negative event, it sets off a floodgate of other events which affects the kingdom of God and his people. Ultimately, we have victory, and God is the victor. It took place in the days of Israel's captivity when a nation when as a nation was under bondage to Babylon. During the days of that captivity, a man arose who was prime minister of Babylon. We know his name, Haman. And he launched an attack on the Jews and tried to annihilate them, just as Hitler and Stalin and others have tried to do. And in more recent times, the radicals who live around the state of Israel, and you know, it's not only to the Jews that these radicals are after, but it's after the Christians as well. Why? Because we go back to the God of Israel. We go back to the one true God through Yeshua. God moved in a wonderful way to deliver his people through Esther, this queen of this foreign kingdom. 
You see, as I see it, this book is here for encouragement to us so that we might understand that God is in control and that He will send His deliverer at the right time and in His way. He is the sovereign God of the universe. How many times have I said sovereign today in the past two minutes or three minutes or four minutes? At least three or four times. That's my point. He is the only true God and there's none other. His name is holy and there's no other name by which we may be saved. He has given to all who follow Him in Messiah Yeshua His deliverance, His protection, His power, His presence, and His victory. He stands firm with His children, with His sheep, with His loved ones. We must always remember that although God disciplines His covenant people, He never abandons them. Think about that. This story is, a wonderfully, is wonderfully eloquent. It's an informative illustration of a great truth that God has given to us, and we must grasp it, especially in our times today. So what are we going to talk about this morning? What is this truth? How do we begin to describe this wonderful God we serve? How do we begin to describe the depths of His love for His children to those who are in His kingdom? To really answer that question, take us hours, days, weeks, years, months, no, I would say a lifetime. How do we begin this morning? I think we should begin with what Rabbi Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we begin this morning with a powerful king in chapter 1. The book opens up with a report of a magnificent kingdom. The king is king over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That is a large area of, of uh, property to be king over. He is a very, very powerful king. His throne is in Susa, or Shushan, in the capital of Babylon, which would be, I think, today, Tehran, in Iran. The king holds an over-the-top banquet. Back in the day, it would be party on, dude. He partied for six months plus a week. 186 days. He has his generals, his lords, his governors at the banquet. They're all making merry. They're all having a good time. No expense was spared. However, the king sends an edict out and says, okay, if you don't want to drink, you don't have to, but there's plenty of wine. Come on, join me. The palace is a sight to behold. No expense spared there. There were white cotton uh, curtains and blue hangings caught up with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rings and marble pillars. The couches were of gold and silver. The mosaic pavement was porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Can you imagine what it looked like? It was just beautiful. The best thing you could ever see at that time. No expense spared. And then when they were drinking, they didn't have the plastic cups. They didn't have the wooden cups. They didn't have the brass cups. They had the golden cups. Goblets of different kinds. The royal wine was lavished. And also, not only was the king holding a party, but the queen, Queen Vashti, held a party for the women in the king's palace. So it must have been some party going on. And then the king was making merry in his heart, and he probably was inebriated and said, hey, I want my wife to come. Now, we don't know why she refused to come. We don't know why he wanted her to come other than he wanted to pray to her. He wanted to have her crown her head, and I'm not going to go there. You know, there was one <laughs> Jewish commentator who said that, you know, she had a, a, a tail, a 
tail put on, the, on her backside, you know, and I don't know. She just refused to come. And so the king's there, and what happens to the king? He ends up getting angry with her, and then his little advisors whispers in his ears, hey, if she does that, our wives are going to do that, and we're going to have pandemonium. We shouldn't let her do that. She should be banished. So she's banished. So he gets that bad advice from his supposed wise men, and depression takes hold of him because of that foolish solution he had because his wife wouldn't come before him. So he was angry at her, and he burned with wrath, as it said, and he banished her, and he divorced her. But then he missed her. But during that time, there was a powerful enemy who came. Haman is his name. He's promoted really high in the government, second none. He was a prime minister. He rose to the power. He was the primary instigator against the Jewish people. He was an agite. He went way back then. He was part of that line that didn't like the Jewish people, didn't like God's people. And as he was going around, he was strutting his stuff. And as he walked, they had to bow to him. Now, some of the commentators say that on his tunic, right in the middle of his tunic, had his God. So in essence, when you bow down to him, you bow down to his God. Well, what was a good Jewish man like Mordecai going to do? Was he going to bow down? Absolutely not, because that would be idolatry. So he brought himself up, and here he is, the number two man in the kingdom. He required everybody, to, everyone to pay homage to him, but Mordecai did not bow to Haman. Mordecai was at the gates, the king's gate, and Haman came in and out all the time, and he never bowed. Everybody else bowed, but Mordecai, he would not pay homage to him. Haman became enraged. He became livid. Why? Because Mordecai was insubordinate to him. Insubordination. He would not bow to him. So he thinks of a way, how can I get rid of this person? So he takes a time to plan and he plots. He knew what he needed to do. He would go to the king. He would have a decree made that all the Jews would be annihilated on this specific day. He would take the lots and he would do it for a year he would take this Jew and the rest of him like him. He would do away with all these Jews, God's covenant people who remained in Persia. That's what he thought. And Haman cast a lot to see what would be the perfect day and time to annihilate these detestable people, these people who will not bow down to me. So he did it for a year with his magicians and he cast a lot, he cast a lot, he cast a lot every month, every day. And finally his evil plan would happen on the 13 Adar. Twelve months of casting lots. This would be the perfect time. This was an earlier vision of Hitler's final solution, the extermination of these people. Haman wanted to destroy. Haman wanted to kill. Haman wanted to annihilate all of the Jews, men, women, children, all in a single day. And he had some backup with the people out there. He stirred them up. And you know, when a decree went out, it couldn't be broken. It had to be done. Times looked hopeless and doomed. Times looked despairing. I'm sure they asked, what do we do? Only thing they could do was to tear their clothes in mourning, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And Mordecai did this, and the other Jews, he was a leader of the Jewish community there, and they went as far as the king's gate. They could not go in the king's gate because they were in sackcloth and ashes. In each and every province, all the Jews were mourning and weeping and with fasting and wailing, and lay in sackcloth and ashes. Can you imagine that? I think during that time, as they were laying in sackcloth and ashes, they were praying to God, saying, God, we're doomed. Where are you? What are you doing? How come you're not taking care of this? How come this has happened to us again? What have we done so bad? Praying about this, and God gave a plan to Mordecai. A rescue plan was developed. Here's this young Jewish girl minding her business, just going about her business with her cousin, who was like a father to, 
to her, and she was just doing her everyday thing. And I'm sure Mordecai taught her the Torah. I'm sure Mordecai taught her the things of God. I'm sure that she knew those things. And here she is, this virgin, this pure young lady, called in with all the other virgins of uh, the, the, the provinces so that the king can have a queen. And so she's there, and she's getting beautiful and all that, and, and she's minding her business, and yet she has favor in the eyes of the eunuch. And you know the story. She has favor in the eyes of the king, and he crowns her queen. So Mordecai comes to Esther, and he talks to Esther. And you know the story where where he was out there and and somebody told told her servant and he told Esther. And Esther tried to give him clothes, but he said, no, I don't want the clothes. Something's bad is going to happen to to me. Let's turn and look at Esther 4 and see what it says here. 4.12. See, Mordecai gave the scroll that, you know, that the, the edict that was going against all the Jews. And he said this in verse 12. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai had told her, you go in and tell the king and plead for our people, plead for our very lives. He gets very blunt with her because she says, I can't do that, Mordecai. You know I can't do that. I'm going to die. What's going to happen if I go in there and he doesn't put his, his uh, scepter out to me? I will die. So then Esther says in verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. He tells her to go before the king and implore his favor and plead with him for his people. Esther says, I can't do that. But then she realizes she has no choice. And God used this queen, this young, beautiful Jewish girl. And so she says, this is what you need to do. And this is interesting. She says, you need to fast. That's the thing about praying, but I think if we fast, we pray, yes? I would think it goes hand in hand. And not only you, Mordecai, you need to tell all the Jewish people, all the remnant to pray, fast and pray for three days, night and day. And I and my maidens will do the same. And then I'll go in. So Mordecai did, just as Esther had commanded, just as Esther had commanded him. So then we come to the point where Esther goes in and she's there and we see a powerful God move in the midst of this pagan kingdom. Esther is courageous and stands before the king. She's very, very smart, I think. I think maybe Howard would say that she has Jewish sensibility because she said, how do I I get Haman? How do I do this? And what does she do? Everybody know? She had the banquet, right? She had a banquet just for, it's invitation only, two people besides her, the king and Haman. Oh, Haman in all his glory. Oh, Haman in all his pride. Look at me. Yeah, the queen even invited me to this for the king. Look at this. He thinks he thinks he has victory, say, in the back of his mind. But God is working behind the scenes. If we don't think he's working behind the scenes, then we need to really think about it. He's working. And so he, she has the banquet, and he's, the king says, anything you want, half of the kingdom, you can have it. She says, no, let's have another banquet tomorrow. Let's, let's party again tomorrow. 
at this time. And so she goes ahead, she goes ahead, and she has the banquet, and they go, and Haman is all proud, and he goes out to the king's gate, and who is there? Mordecai, that Jewish guy who won't bow to me. I just hate his guts. What's wrong with him? I gotta take care of him. So he runs home and he complains to his wife, Zeresh, right? And she actually, she actually prophesies his death. And so he, you know, he brings his, his friends in and misery likes company, don't they, right? He brings them in and he talks to them, you know that. And his wife says, why don't you build the gallows and you can go to the king and have the king hang Mordecai on the gallows. So that happens. And so the next day they have the, the party, the second party. Uh, Esther is, uh, has a second party, and, and uh, so then she reveals. Oh, by the way, before that, we have to go and talk about the fact that the king couldn't sleep, right? He had insomnia, and they read the chronicles of what happened, and then Mordecai was not honored, so Mordecai was honored, and guess who had to honor Mordecai? Haman, we know that, right? Oh, boy, that plan to annihilate the Jews is really going downhill fast, isn't it? So Esther has the banquet, and, and the second banquet, uh, he's there, and, and she points the finger she says, oh king, oh king, I'm going to be destroyed. If we were just going to be slaves, it would be okay and all of that, but we're going to be destroyed. He said, who is that, my queen? Who is that, my queen? And she points to Haman. He's the one. He's the culprit. He's the one who's done that. And the anger just comes up from within the king. He's so angry, he walks out into the garden, and then Haman is on the couch with Queen Esther, pleading with his life, oh Esther, oh Esther, please don't let him kill me. And the king comes in, and you know what happens. He catches her there. Catches him there on the couch. You would have cost my queen. They put a bag over his head and he goes out and he's hung on his own gallows. And then the queen says, we need to have, because of the king, the, the Medes and Persians, you know, the law cannot be changed. There's another law that is given that all the Jews can defend themselves in all of the provinces. The plan for Haman to annihilate the Jews didn't have fruition. Why? Because God was behind the scenes working. Just as today, God is behind the scenes working. And I need to ask you, is he working in your life, where you are, where you live? The king makes a decree. It's on that appointed day for destruction that the Jews defend themselves. And then some people become Jews. Interesting. And the Feast of Purim is instituted, and Mordecai is put up as second in command. So what? We just went over ten chapters real quickly. My way. We have a paradox. What is it? So what do we do with the justice gust? Someone has said this about the marvelous story of God's working and moving behind the scenes in the lives of Mordecai and Esther. The impact of the lives of Mordecai and Esther is one of the most amazing aspects of this story, and it shows us that God is not limited in who he works through, nor how. In view of the world in which we live, we need more Esthers and Mordecais that will stand up and make a difference for God and his children, even if, it has, even if it's at their peril as these two experienced. As Mervyn Brenneman will well observe, God needs servants today who will speak up when, when his people are in danger or when, injust, when injustice and corruption are rampant in society. Esther and Mordecai were not perfect, nor were they spiritual giants when they first were brought into their place of influence. How, many encouraging, how encouraging that is for us who are not another Moses or Paul or Peter or others of that caliber, because God can work in and through us just as well. Let us all be able to say with the beloved Paul at the end of the stories of our lives. Esther is a story of triumph that grew out of tragedy, ecstasy out of agony, celebration out of devastation. Yours can be the same. 
This book has shown us many things, including that God can use anyone for his glory that is willing to be used, that he is ultimately in control of all things in our lives, and he will work according to his foreknowledge to bring all things together in our lives for our best and his glory. The enemy may rage, but God will turn his attacks back on his own head ultimately. We need to stand strong against the threefold enemy that directed the lives of the king and Haman, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Both of them were destroyed by it ultimately. You see, by chance, Queen Vashti inexplicably defied the king, which set off a search for a new queen of Persia. By chance, a beautiful Jewish girl named Hadassah, or Esther, was the niece of Mordecai, a leader of the Jews, who served in the king's palace. By chance, of the countless young women in Persia, Esther was ultimately chosen to be Persia's new queen during the month of Tevet. By chance, Mordecai overcame, overheard the conspiracy against the king, and Esther's presence in the palace allowed him to warn the king about the assassination plot. By chance, the king's servants provoked Haman to see whether Mordecai's commitment to his Jewish faith would overrule the king's decree. By chance, the king agreed to Haman's plan to exterminate the Jews on the 13th of Adar, result of the magician's dice. By chance, Esther was the only one able to directly thwart Haman's plan, as Mordecai said, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. By chance, the king was in the receptive mood when Esther came to appeal to him to repeal the evil decree and agreed to attend her banquet. By chance, Haman's wife, Zeresh, suggested that a gallows be built to hang Mordecai, the very gallows from which Haman would later hang. By chance, the king slept badly one night so that he ordered the royal chronicle to be read to him. By chance, the king came across the record of Mordecai's meritorious service. By chance, Haman entered to request Mordecai be hanged upon the gallows precisely when the king was thinking about how to reward Mordecai. By chance, Zeresh foretold Haman's fall into the hands of the Jews just before Haman was called to attend the second banquet. By chance, Haman fell on the bed with Esther just as the king returned to the banquet room. By chance, the king decreed that Haman be hanged on the gallows he erected to hang Mordecai and bequeathed all of Haman's property to Esther and Mordecai. By chance, Mordecai was promoted to the new position of prime minister. By chance, the new decree of the king caused fear to spread among all of Persia so that Haman's plan was routed. And finally, by chance, the Jews of Persia, Persia rested on the 14th day of Adar and declared it a holiday of celebrating and rejoicing. By chance, of course not, of course not. I'd like to close with this as our application. An important lesson for us is God's con consistent protection of the Jewish people should give us, all who are believers in Messiah Yeshua, a sense of hope and security. God is a covenant God keeping faithful to every generation. Secondly, we have a responsibility to accomplish God's will in our lives. This is very apparent in this book that God is behind the scenes working out his perfect will, his plan for the lives of his covenant people. As a people of God, we have a responsibility to act if the will of God is to be carried out. Fourthly, 
We have a responsibility to prayer and fasting for the lives of all of God's people. There's a call to all of us to be aware of what's going on in the world today and to seek God. We also have a responsibility today to pray not only for the Jewish people, but for all people who are far from God. The dangerous threat is not so much the physical destruction as in the days of Haman, although that is imminent because of the nations that surround Israel hate both Jews and Christians. It is a spiritual catastrophe for many who are far from God, the God of their fathers, and the appointed Yeshua Messiah. Purim for us, Purim for us should be a reminder that God desires to use people who are available to serve in the kingdom. Who knows whether you have not been placed where you are for such a time as this. May you and I be faithful messengers of Messiah bringing the message of spiritual redemption to those around us. Win or lose by the way we choose. I'd like to close with this song, and I was going to sing it, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe it will come out, I don't know, by Stuart Dowerman. Matter of fact, Psalm 34 was today. And Shalitha didn't know that I was going to have this today, but this is a different tune. This song was written out of gloominess and destruction of the Jews for Jesus um, offices in San Francisco, as I understand it. They came in and there was graffiti all over and the windows were broken and it just was really a downer. Here are these young Jewish believers in Messiah Yeshua reaching out to the community there and they were uh, persecuted and, and uh, they, were, you know, they, they, were, they didn't want him around. No one wanted to hear it. And so he came up with this song, At all times I will bless him. His praise will be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. The humble man will hear him, the afflicted will be glad, and join with me to magnify the Lord. Let us exalt his name together forever. I sought the Lord, he heard me, and delivered me from my fears. Let us exalt his name together forever. Oh, sing his praises and magnify the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps round those who fear him to save them and deliver them from harm. Though lions roar with hunger, we lack for no good thing. No wonder then we praise the Lord. Come children now and hear me if you would seek long, see long life. Just keep your lips from wickedness and lies. Do good and turn from evil. Seek peace instead of strife. Love righteousness. Everybody knows the rest of it. And God will hear your cry. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from my fears. Let us exalt his name together forever. Oh, sing his praises. Magnify the Lord. As you read Esther, and I'm going to assume you will read Esther today, tomorrow, and the next day. As you read Esther, think about God being behind the scenes. Don't think he's not, because we know he is. May we honor God through what we say, what we do, and who we are in our attitude. May it come from within. Come from within from him. His name is holy. His name is to be glorified. He is to be honored. Let's pray. I am humbled, Lord, to think of my own life and how you've been in my life and how you've been behind the scenes orchestrating things in my life and people in my life around me to help me through this life. This I had no intention of following after you, God. Oh, I was religious, God. Yes, but that's about it. But I thank you for getting hold of me behind the scenes, bringing those men to my door in the barracks in Norfolk, Virginia, telling me I need Yeshua, need to be saved from the destruction of hell. 
and from being separated from you forever. Thank you that you're a God who's a covenant God who loves us, who gives us life eternal. You don't leave us as orphans, Lord, but you give us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You're powerful. You provide. You promise. You're providential. We thank you that no matter what the plot is against us as a people, we can trust you with our very lives, which we do. As we celebrate Purim this year, as we celebrate the rejoicing of what happened and how you provided for your people in a natural way, not in a miraculous way, but in a natural way, may we see you working in our lives here. And may all the Jewish community that celebrates this year, Purim, see that, not just in the revelry, not in just the time of rejoicing, but getting down to the gut of what it really is that you're working behind the scenes to save your people, your remnant. I thank you for the today. Thank you for your love and grace and your mercy. We thank you for life eternal in Yeshua's name. Amen.